In 1 Peter chapter 3, we have holiness and the fifth commandment continued. Exhortations of mutual duties, both within the church and toward those who are on the outside. We have Christ's example set before us, the flood of Noah and baptisms as examples to encourage us. Here now the reading of God's inspired word, 1 Peter chapter 3, profitable for us. Verse 1, Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they also may without the word be won by the conversation of the wives, while they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear, whose adorning, let it not be that outward adorning of plaiting the hair and of wearing of gold or of putting on of apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart and that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. For after this manner in the old time, the holy women also who trusted in God adorned themselves, being in subjection unto their own husbands. Even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters ye are, as long as ye do well, and are not afraid with any amazement. Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. Finally, be all of one mind, having compassion one of another, love as brethren, be pitiful, be courteous, not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrarywise, blessing, knowing that ye are thereunto called that ye should inherit a blessing. For he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that they speak no guile. Let him eschew evil and do good let him seek peace and ensue it. For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears are open unto their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. And who is he that will harm you if ye be followers of that which is good? But, and if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye. And be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. For it is better, if the will of God be so, that ye suffer for well-doing than for evil doing. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit, by which also he went and preached unto the, prison, the spirits in prison, which sometime were disobedient, when once the long suffering of God waited in the days of Noah. While the ark was a preparing, 
wherein few, that is, eight souls were saved by water. The like figure whereunto even baptism doth, doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. Thus far the reading of God's inspired word from 1 Peter chapter 3. Verses 1 through 7, we have a continuation of the theme of holiness and the fifth commandment, the duties of superiors, inferiors, and equals. Likewise, verse 1 tells us, Ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands. Warning, warning. This is a hate speech alert. Warning, warning. Here, the apostle, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, says that wives are to be in subjection to their own husbands. This means to voluntarily put yourself at the will of another person. Just like we were told to be in subjection to our magistrates or slaves to their masters. There is to be to their own husbands a subjection by the wives. This is not a blanket submission to all men, though there is a deference to be given generally to the stronger sex by ladies, but this is a submission and yielding to the will of her own husband in the Lord. Verse 1 goes on, If any obey not the word, if he is unpersuaded by the truth of the word of God, remember the builders in chapter 2? who rejected the chief cornerstone, they were unpersuaded by the word. They were hard-hearted and disobedient. They crucified our Lord Jesus Christ. They were wicked. But that did not dissolve the marital tie, according to Peter. In fact, the duty of submission was not set aside by the disobedience of the husband. This is a rebuke to the lawless, the wicked, the feminist doctrine of submission that says this. You ladies, be in subjection to your husband so long as he's perfect. Once you find that your husband is not perfect, you have no need to submit any longer to him. Oh, in fact, you can leave the home. You can get divorced because, after all, narcissism is a grounds for divorce. Really? Is that so? Is that what the Spirit of God says? No, that's the Spirit from hell, the Spirit of demonic lies. The wife's subjection to her husband is not based off of his perfection. Rather, it's based off of a divine command and the order of nature under which that command is issued. Wives, are your husbands perfect? You know the answer to this, don't you? No, your husbands are not perfect. Do they consistently obey God's word? Well, maybe they don't. Yet note, he says in the present imperative, keep on subjecting yourselves to your own husbands, even if they don't obey the word. That they may without the word be won by the conversation of the wives 
Did you know that ungodly men are more likely to listen to what their wife actually believes if she doesn't nag him? If she actually does things that are in obedience to God? Oh, what a thought. Actually to do what I say I believe. Yeah, that's what we're all supposed to do. This is what we're called to as Christians, and in this case, wives in particular. The unbelieving husband will say, well, you claim to believe in Jesus. Jesus forgives our sins. And Jesus is a king who doesn't throw off the order of nature, does he? He reestablishes nature by perfecting it through his grace. So if you're a godly wife and you won't submit to your husband, are you really a godly wife? Do you really believe in this Jesus? Does his religion do you any good in making you a better wife? Well, Peter's saying it better do so. It should make you a better wife. And then he talks about their adorning. This has to do with what we call cosmetology. The cosmos is the ordered universe of God. It is an adorned and beautiful place. So women adorn themselves. And he says negatively and positively what that adorning should be. Let it not be the outward adorning, plating of hair, wearing of gold. This is the focus of a woman. Does she want to be seen and lusted after? Is that her goal? As if beastly men will be enticed to look at her by these things that she wears. Or does she want God to see things that are not visible? Things that can't be seen by beasts with their eyes, but are only seen by God himself. Peter says, let your adornment be this, that you are in subjection to your own husbands. Verse 5. The women of old adorned themselves, and then the participle is being in subjection. That describes how they adorned themselves. Pious adornment is not in cosmetology, in the external man, in the things that are visible to animals and to men alike. Pious adornment is in spirit, in the hidden man, and in the voluntary actions of subjecting the will to that of the husband. Ladies, beautify and adorn yourselves with godly cosmetics. That's what he's saying, adornment, that is fearing God. Subjection to your own husband. A quiet spirit, rather than being clamorous or willful. Have you ever heard of the POWs? The pushy, obnoxious women? Don't be a POW. Don't be a pastorette. Don't seek your own will by pretending like you're being submissive to your husband. That's hypocrisy. Actually subject your will and say, so long as this man does not command me to sin, I'm going to do what he says. That's subjection. That's what it means to subject yourself. This is also, by the way, a rebuke to the so-called patriarchal wife where she'll have all the, th oh, I want to support patriarchy and my husband and everything, but who actually runs the home? Well, you find out sometimes it's not the husband. He doesn't run the show. If you want to see how the family works, look to her. She'll show you how it works. There can be hypocrisy. There can be masks. There can be external things. Oh, look at how godly we are. We do this external thing. Well, 
Do you subject yourself to your husband? Is the husband the head of the household? Does he rule in his home? Or is he constantly undermined and opposed? Sarah then is brought forth in verse 6. Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Now, it wasn't just a word that she used. He's not saying, you have to use this word. What he's saying is, do you have this attitude toward your husband? Because when Sarah said that Abraham was her Lord, nobody was listening but God. Nobody else could hear her. She was inside of the tent. God heard what she said. It was the spontaneous response. How does she think of her husband as her master? Baal is the word that is used in Hebrew. He is my owner. He is my master. He is my Lord. And this led her to do what her husband said, obedience. She obeyed her husband. That means to come under his orders. Not just saying, I'm willing to do what he says, but actually doing what he orders you to do. Now again, the feminists are rebuked here. They say, well, here's how this works. The husband has enough headship to make him have to defer to his wife all the time. That's what his headship means. He can't issue orders to his wife. No, 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 no. He must learn to always constantly defer to his wife. Really? Is that so? So when is it that the wife has to obey then? Never. And so women become headstrong, they become obstinate, they become androgynous, and they lose their femininity because there's never a time where they have to actually obey their husbands. They just have to say he's the head, poof, out goes their duty. Is that what he says? No, it's both the subjection of spirit, the willingness to come under the authority, and the actual obedience to specific commands. It's both. But you don't understand. My husband's a jerk. He's going to get us in a pile of trouble if I just do what he says. Whose daughters ye are, as long as ye do well and are not what? Afraid of what? Well, what's going to happen if I trust this guy? What's going to happen if I do what he says? What's going to happen if I submit? All, the, all these bad things that could happen, you don't understand. You think God doesn't understand? This is his word. You think he doesn't understand your marriage, your life, your circumstances, and such that, well, these laws don't apply to me because I'm special. I'm a princess. I was taught this from my earliest days. I have Disney to tell me, oh, you're so, there's a hero inside of you. Just believe in yourself. Hogwash. Listen to God. Don't listen to Satan. It's that simple. God speaking, he says these words, listen to him. Likewise, verse 7, ye husbands, there is a duty both of those in authority as well as those under authority. There are mutual duties in the fifth commandment. What is the husband's duty? Dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel. A husband can crush his wife because he's stronger, especially in his body. He can be stronger than his wife. He may have stronger mental powers. He might have stronger emotional strength. 
How is he to use that strength? To bring her down and crush her? To cause her to do what is evil? To give no heed to her weakness? No. To protect, to honor, to bless her, he says. And again, people abuse this notion, saying this is how we get the husband to relinquish his authority. See, you're not dwelling in an understanding way. You have to obey your wife. I know men who have been excommunicated by churches because they won't obey their wife. Wickedness. Dwelling with knowledge doesn't mean submission. It doesn't mean God overturns the order of nature. It means that the strength of the husband is to be a blessing to his wife, to grow her in the knowledge of God, understanding that she is not a man like you are. She doesn't think like you do. She doesn't behave like you do. She doesn't have the strengths that you have. And understanding and honoring that as such, this is the duty of the husband. Husbands, then, understand your wives so that you may bless and not crush her. Do not expect her to behave like a man. Rather, understand her duties from God's word. Do you remember Manoah when the angel came to him? He said, you make sure that she does everything I told her. You see that? Manoah, you're the head of your wife. You make sure that all the rules I laid out, she follows them. Now, isn't it her duty to obey the angel? Yes. But who's supposed to make sure she obeys? Her husband. He's supposed to govern her. He's supposed to wisely guide her in the knowledge of her duty, correct her timely when she is wrong, and cause her to be encouraged when she does what is right. That's the duty of any superior. Do not expect her to behave as a man, but rather show her from the word of God what is her duty before God. What does she owe to her husband, to her children, to her parents, to her neighbors? What is her duty before the Lord? And then notice the note of equality as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. God has adopted your wife. God has made her your testamental equal. Both of you inherit from the Father all the goods through Christ, right? Right. Does that mean we're equal in all ways? No, absolutely not. We are not maritally equal. We are not physically e equal. But God's grace does make an equality in this testament that God has established. And that grace that God gives us through Christ perfects nature. It does not abolish it. You know, the little rainbow fish, that means grace abolishes nature. Male and female doesn't mean anything anymore because, after all, Jesus died on the cross. Is that what Peter's saying? Well, there's this spiritual equality, so therefore there's marital equality. No, there is not. That is the teaching of Satan. That is from the pit of hell. Satan opposes the order of nature, the Genesis account of male and female. He hates that. Because that's God's order imposed on the world. Satan wants to overturn it. We have then exhortations to unity, love, compassion, peace, and patience under sufferings in verses 8 through 17. We're all to be of one mind, having compassion one of another, loving as brethren. These are equals. We're to have the same way of thinking, a compassion that is equal toward each other. We're to love as those created in God's image, recreated in Christ. 
He says to be pitiful, that is to have your bowels moved with compassion when you see your brethren suffer, to have pity for them. To be courteous, he says. This is to be kind versus being sour or being churlish or abrasive. Matthew Poole says it means to be affable, to be humane, to be of a sweet conversation in opposition to sourness and moroseness. That's the idea of courtesy. Not being a sourpuss, not being so negative as they say, always focused on the bad. No, we must be courteous. And notice, since we're called to receive a blessing, we're called to bless those, even those that curse us. Now, if we could grasp the greatness of the blessing God has in mind for us, which is what he's referring us to in verse 9, if we understood how great the blessings are that we have in Christ, could we be morose? Could we be peevish? Could we be unkind? No, we would bless at all times, because even those who come against us to kill us, to persecute us, they're doing us a favor. We're counted highly blessed if, we par if we're persecuted for righteousness' sake. We're to rejoice and be glad. That's what happened to the prophets. That's what happened to Christ. And I'm counted worthy to suffer for his name. We should rejoice. They're doing you a favor. Bless and curse not, he says. Then he quotes from the Psalms in verse 10. He says there in verse 10 that he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that they speak no guile. Who doesn't want the good life? Who doesn't want to be blessed? Everybody wants that. Well, here's the deal. It's conditional. Let him refrain his tongue from evil. Watch what you say. Don't speak deceitfully. Don't tear your neighbor down. Don't be guileful, trying to get your way to manipulate people and do what you want. Rather, put off evil and do good, he says. Put off the old man, put on the new. Seek peace and ensue it. Sometimes peace runs away from you. There's so much wickedness and lawlessness. You can't find peace. Run after it, Peter says. Do all that you can to make for peace. Because God has ears open to the prayers of such as do these things. God governs the world in a just and moral way. His promises aren't a license to speak with our tongues whatever we want, to ruin and destroy like a wrecking ball all the relationships in our lives. No, we're to seek peace so much as lieth within you. Live at peace with all men. And verse 14, if you suffer for righteousness sake, happy are ye, you're blessed. And be ready, he says, to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope in verse 15. Then the example of Christ is brought forward, verses 18 through 22. Christ hath once suffered for sins. Again, it's not a repeated sacrifice like the Old Testament or like the Mass of the Roman Catholics. It's a once-for-all completed sacrifice for sins with regard to our sins. The just for the unjust. Was Christ a sinner? No, he was totally and absolutely just. But God imputed our sins to him and he suffered for them. This reconciled us to God. 
Verse 19 refers us to the preaching of Christ. He went and preached in verse 19. Now, some people have notions in here that somehow Jesus, after the death of the patriarchs, they went to this place called Limbo of the patriarchs, and Jesus, after he died upon the cross, went and preached to the fathers in prison. Is that what it says here? It actually says that Noah was preaching. Christ was preaching and Noah was declaring what Christ told him to say. In fact, Noah is a preacher of righteousness, an heir of the righteousness by faith, and he condemned the world, Hebrews 11, verse 7. And he refers to this time in which Noah preached, when they were sometimes disobedient, and once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was a-preparing. During that whole period, Christ preached to these spirits in prison through the preaching of Noah. And did they listen? No. They stayed in the bonds of sin and death. But eight souls were saved by water. Now, I'm sorry if you know some Baptists, you should share this verse with them. He compares the ark to baptism. Let me ask you a question. Who is immersed and who is not? The wicked, the godless, as Pharaoh and his armies were baptized according to the Baptists in the Red Sea, and the wicked were baptized by the flood, but Noah, we find, was baptized by the waters, wasn't he? Because he was raised up by those waters while the wicked were destroyed by those waters. The waters saved them by bearing up that ark. The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. Just as the water bore the ark up, so the waters of baptism, signifying the preaching of God's word through Noah and now through the apostles of Christ and those that heard him, the preaching of God's word has come and baptism is a sign of that word. What did Noah preach? There's going to be a flood. There's going to be a destruction. This is the manner of salvation. This ark is where you go to be saved, and you can't be saved otherwise. So we say there is only one way of salvation through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And when the conscience is cleansed by the preaching of God's word, by the power of the Holy Spirit, he says, I will sprinkle you and I will pour clean water upon you, I will take away your idols and your filthiness. Not the filth of the flesh with the external baptism, but the answer of a good conscience, the internal baptism of God's Holy Spirit. The internal cleansing, the renewal and forgiveness of sins. Can hypocrites be washed externally? Yes, they can. Can they be washed internally by what is signified in baptism? No, they cannot. Then he refers us to Christ who has gone into heaven, who is on the right hand of God after Christ suffered, after he was buried and rose again, he ascended into heaven and is seated at God's right hand. Let us then see our blessings properly. God has blessed us and will bless us let us live in the light of those blessings as those united to Christ. Though we suffer, yet we shall inherit and be exalted. And thus far the exposition of 1 Peter chapter 3.